interested in vintage clothing, secondhand shopping, the reselling community, history, or all of the above, then this is the show for you. I'd love to welcome you today. My name is Rebecca G, and I am here to talk to you about other people's things. I'm here not only to discuss the material aspect of clothing, but our relationship as a society to other people's things and how we go about obtaining them, selling them, finding them, and sharing them. Let's face it, it's hard to find modern-day companies that make things like they used to, and vintage used to be a viable, affordable option to have high-quality and unique things. You know, back when it wasn't so cool. Okay, so I am so excited to welcome my special guest today. Her name is Victoria. We have been speaking for a couple of weeks now back and forth on social media, and I have been so interested in hearing about her experiences as first and foremost a vintage lover, but also as someone who sells her own experience She or from her own collection. So she has a lot of experience with everything that I've been talking about, so I've been very excited to have her here. Um, So Victoria, your feedback has been such an important piece of this puzzle. And just to start off on a fun note to kind of get us relaxed and just into the flow here, can you tell me about your favorite era of vintage to wear and collect? Yeah, definitely. So my favorite era is probably like 30s, 40s cusp. I really love the sportswear, like play suits and jumpsuits and overalls and all that kind of fun stuff. And I think that what I love about it is that I love like the art deco sort of geometric prints that were around of that time. But when you get play suits or jumpsuits, I just feel like it makes those prints more wearable in a modern way. Yeah. I think that's a really a really good point to bring up and I think that's why the 30s 40s cusp has been so popular these past I don't know 5 years or so as the vintage scene has really exploded because there's something so relatable and transferable to modern clothing like the dresses are a little shorter there's the cute puff sleeves that's really flattering on a lot of body types and like you said the jumpsuits the play suits the gym kind of where it almost has this weird parallel with the athleisure craze that's going on right now. Have you ever thought about that? Yeah, now that you mentioned that, (laughs) that makes perfect sense. (laughs) Yeah, there's something about, I want to say, like casual wear that you can wear also as streetwear or just out with your friends. And that was, I think, one of the first times in history, at least modern history, that clothes really started becoming so flexible and um, I guess I guess you could say like you can just wear them anywhere and that I think almost any age can appreciate and that's why you see those those clothing or that clothing from that time period I feel like it's kind of so popular and in demand and it can be very expensive too that's why I only have a couple of things from that time period because it's just hard it's hard to get to get my hands on yeah definitely I'm a little salty that my favorite (laughs) era and the things I like the most have like exploded in popularity and now this price have just skyrocketed 
Yeah. No, I think a lot of people would agree with you. So just to get an idea of your background, can you give me like your age or your age range and how long you've been selling and buying vintage? Yeah. So I am mid-20s and buying vintage, I've probably for the past 15 years, um, I started collecting when I was 10 years old and selling vintage, I would say primarily the last year or like the last year, like to two years. Okay. So that's a long time. You've been in the scene for a while. You're well-versed. Um, I have another question that kind of relates to that. So what are your earliest or most important memories of deciding that you liked vintage or older things? Yes. So like I said, I've been collecting vintage ever since I was a little kid. You know, my mom would take me thrifting. We'd go to local secondhand stores, vintage shops, charity shops, flea markets, all that jazz. And back then it was more about finding things that were affordable in our budget. But what I really loved about vintage, what made me fall in love with it was its uniqueness. I liked finding clothes that were different from what all of my friends were wearing. I've always had a strong love of fashion. And so I feel like that ties in with vintage um, just because it's fashion that you don't really see nowadays. Um, And I've also always had a love of history. Like I had an American Girl doll as a kid. Um, Molly, obviously. (laughs) Um, I love that. I had Samantha. Yeah. Yeah. Vintage was a way to combine my love of fashion and history. That's great. I I had a similar story myself. Did you ever find that whenever you were a child or a younger person and you were wearing vintage or anything you got secondhand, did you feel that there was a social acceptance for it? Or what, what, how did your peers interpret that or did they care at all hmm that's interesting yeah it's funny because I do think that kids thought I was a little weird for wearing vintage because like when I was a kid everyone was wearing like Aeropostale and like Abercrombie and Fitch and that kind of stuff it was like the logo t-shirts and jeans and I hated jeans I barely wear pants as it is (laughs) Um, I just always love like colorful dresses and fun prints. Um, like, uh, when I wasn't wearing vintage, I would wear like stuff from anthropology, like that kind of vibe. Yeah. So, um, I do think that like, as a child, other kids thought that I dressed weird, but adults, they complimented me. They thought I was cool. (laughs) And as I got older... Um, I don't know if it's because thrifting has now become popular and there are more people who are dressing more unconventionally in public, but it's definitely, uh, I feel like people have become more accepting of the way that I dress. Yeah, that's, that's a great answer. And I've noticed that too with, the younger generation so I'm considered a millennial and I would say with 
Gen Z and the younger people in my, I have some younger siblings that would fall into that category. I've just noticed there's less bullying, it seems, for what you wear in school. And like thrifting seems to be a little bit more what's considered cool for sure. I've never seen so many young kids in the thrift store or younger people than I have in the past few years, which I think is a good thing. It, it's a double-edged sword, but it's it's nice that there's that social acceptance for it now. And I'm sure that people still do get bullied depending on where you live for what you wear. But I think that there's just much more of an acceptance on on that sort of thing. And it's like seen as cool and unique to have something that nobody else is wearing rather than people look at you funny for wearing something that's not Aeropostale or Abercrombie or, or Hollister, which was, those were like the top three kind of popular mall stores whenever I was growing up. And if you weren't wearing that, you were basically just like nothing. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of dramatic, but, but you, you wanted to be wearing that stuff because you were going to fit in at least at least if you wore that so I like that now there's more flexibility and I'm so glad to hear that you didn't have too hard of a time wearing things that were different um, and that you you felt like yeah you were kind of weird but at least you were getting some positive feedback from adults and some other people yeah (laughs) so where do you typically find the things that you like to wear and has that changed at all since you started thrifting? Yeah. So nowadays, I typically find the stuff I wear online, especially on Instagram. I follow thousands of vintage resellers on social media. And a lot of them sell directly through Instagram and Facebook. Um, as I said, when I was a kid, I would get my clothes from local stores. And that's primarily where I got my vintage up until maybe four years ago. Oh, yeah. that's so interesting. So only four years ago, you were finding, would you say up until four years ago, you were finding things on a decently regular basis that you could wear and enjoy? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that I in particular had access to things because there was a very well curated vintage store within like 20 minutes of where I grew up. So I think that store in particular, it really helped like 30s, 40s, you could get 20s, Victorian, Edwardian, like all of the older stuff, which you really don't see in stores at all anymore. Mm -mm. No. And if you do find it in an antique store or something, it's either falling apart or way overpriced. So you wouldn't even think about picking it up. It's like, what am I going to do with this $900 Edwardian blouse that is shredded and I can't even wear it so yeah I I have (laughs) noticed that and at this vintage store that was close to where you grew up were the things affordable there oh absolutely super affordable um yeah I have a bunch of 30s and 40s pieces I got in there that were in like so, like, for day dresses, it'd be in, like, the 30 to $50 range. Um, wow. And then maybe more special dresses were, like, in the $100 range. But definitely, like, so much more affordable than things that yeah. you see nowadays. And how long ago was that place around for you to shop at? Is it still there? It's still there. I would say that their product has changed a bit. Um, there's a lot more 
60s through 80s stuff now and the older stuff isn't really on display it's still for sale so the store um has like a storage room where most of the vintage is held um it's not all in the storefront and most of the older i would say 40s and older and like special pieces are in storage and that's only accessible to um like corporate sort of people like uh people who um work for archives like Lily Pulitzer, Moschino or people who work in like the film industry who are looking for costumes. Okay, so they're not really selling to the public anymore those pieces. Yeah, not really. They have like a storeroom sale. I want to say it's either once or twice a year. It's like the anniversary of the store and I think Black Friday. Um, so on those days, um, the storeroom is open to the public and the people can come and see those older pieces. And if you come in and say, hey, I'm looking for 30s, 40s, Edwardian, um, the employees will go to the storeroom and like pick stuff out for you. But you can't really look at it yourself. Okay. I wonder, do you have any idea why they changed it? Um, I think it's partially to do with the audience, the people who are coming and buying things. I think that nowadays, uh, the newer stuff, the 60s through 80s is selling just in that area. Um, I think that they're, after... I want to say that the change was kind of around COVID. Um, I think before then there were more collectors coming in, more people who would go to like World War II fairs and that sort of thing. And so there was yeah. more of um, a local interest in older pieces. But I think now it's mostly like college kids um, and like high schoolers. And I think they're more interested in like the 80s and the Y2K sort of stuff. So I think that's why that's more of what's in the storefront now. Okay, so that's just more in demand at this time. Yeah, in that location. Okay, very cool. My next question, something that really stood out to me from our first conversation that we ever had is that you said that sellers who have sky-high prices uh, have been kind of bothering you for a long time. So when did you start noticing higher prices than what you were comfortable with for things that you normally like to buy? Yeah, so I think it started maybe three years ago. Um, I remember I was looking at like 30s, 40s cusp rayon dresses, the puff sleeve, you know, princessy type of dresses. And they were within like a $200 to $300 range. And I thought, wow, that's kind of expensive but I think the year before I had bought like a 1930s silk chiffon bias cut like rhinestone evening gown sort of thing and I spent probably that much on that evening gown and now this is the price of more day wear sort of pieces and I was like wow that's that's a pretty steep jump I mean I used like I said I used to be able to get like daywear sort of pieces for $30 to $50. Um, I have two 40s jumpsuits I bought four years ago, and they were each around $100. And now 
gray jumpsuits are between like six hundred and a thousand dollars. It's crazy. Uh, that's so interesting, and I feel like I haven't been seeing stuff like that for sale as as much lately either. Which I have no idea. I have some theories as to why that may be, but six hundred to a thousand dollars for daywear is is very interesting to me because I don't know if you've noticed this too, but it seems like evening wear now from those time periods is a bit more affordable than day or casual wear too, which kind of shows the popularity and how it's grown. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Which, you know, it used to be the opposite. And I heard the same thing from someone telling me about men's suits saying that um, if you want to find a man's tuxedo or evening wear, it's super cheap compared to the cost of like a day suit. Everybody wants the day wear and the casual wear now, but it's seeming like the fancier stuff just isn't really being used as much. And I wonder if what you said about COVID has something to do with it, like a cultural shift of where we're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I had this like 1950s uh, like silk party dress that um, I was trying to sell during COVID and nobody wanted it. Like nobody wanted it at all. And I was like, this is crazy. And I wasn't able to sell it until this year, like around prom season where I was finally able to get rid of it. But I'm like, it was for sale for like three years and no one was interested. I'm like, this is crazy. Yeah. It, it's funny how these patterns align with what's going on socially and culturally, because fashion really is about that. It's just like, I think I watched this fashion history podcast and she always says that fashion isn't an island it's a response which I always thought was clever because it's a response to whatever is going on at the time and it's just it's so true with the situation you just were explaining Mm -hmm. so my next question is have you ever been duped into buying something that was labeled as vintage but wasn't what you thought it was yeah so a couple years ago I bought what I thought was a 1930s jumpsuit from a seller on Instagram. And when it arrived, it was like a children's onesie. Oh, what? <laughs> like it had a butt flap. <laughs> um, it also had a pretty large stain on the front that hadn't been uh, in the description of it. And I had contacted the seller and she had told me like, well, it wasn't in the description But if you look at, like, the 15-second video in the post of where, like, she's kind of, like, flipping it around, you can kind of see for, like, a second that there's a stain in a butt flap. So, like, you should have been paying more attention before purchasing. Wow. So the seller blamed it on you. Yeah, she did. Um, And, like, maybe that's technically true. Like, you were, like you know, eagle eye on like this video, but I still feel like those are things you should have also documented, like written in the description. And without that, I feel it's very misleading. It's dishonest. And, you know, I think a fair argument for her would be, you know, if, if it was there, and you're saying you knew it was there, then why didn't you write write about it in the description, too? And you, you just showed it really quick on the video that kind of shows that maybe she she had a feeling that that would impact somebody else wanting to buy it, which to me shows a little bit of, well, a lot of dishonesty. Yeah. Can you tell me what happened after that? Were you able to get a refund? 
No, unfortunately, she has a no refund policy. So I wasn't able to get a refund. I was able to resell it on eBay later on for a little less than what I paid, but it was still pretty annoying. Yeah, I I think that there is a responsibility for resellers to step up, even if they have a no refund policy. I feel like that should supersede the no refund policy because at that point, there's a very important piece of the puzzle that they're leaving out. And let's be real here. I don't think that most people who are buying on the internet um, are going to be zooming in and straining their eyes to look for details that the seller missed. Like that's their responsibility to communicate clearly what they're selling. Yeah, definitely. And I, I just remembered this other experience I had with someone who I consider prominent reseller on Instagram I had bought a pair of 1940s shoes from uh, her Etsy, and when they came, they were rock hard. They were supposed to be patent leather, but the leather had completely dried out. And you would wow. never have been able to tell from the pictures because it, you know, you can't see that it's dried out. It's just like when you try to put them on or you touch them, and they were just rock solid hard. And again, I contacted this seller. I was like, hey, like the patent leather is completely dried out. Like these are rock hard. Um, and she was like, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize because they were not her shoe size. She said she had had a friend come over it who was the right shoe size and try them on. And the friend didn't have an issue. And um, but again, she didn't offer a refund. What? what did she mention anything about their condition in the listing? Like, did she, she say they, they were, were wearable? Like the the oh, condition no. in the listing said that they were like perfect, like basically dead stock. Wow. I so I've bought a few pairs of vintage shoes from the forties. Um, one, one, and I feel like that's something I've seen in multiple Instagram sellers adds to talking about the condition of the leather because if it's dried out it's not going to be wearable and that was a very important detail that's I feel like a really big pet peeve of mine is whenever people are just not being completely honest or at least if they have a different opinion of the item I think they should be receptive to customer feedback and if they're not that just shows like really bad customer service to me especially in this day and age where we have a very um specific idea of how most businesses interact otherwise but would you agree to say it's it's almost like a different different set of rules apply on the internet for reselling especially just in general yeah yeah absolutely and uh as someone who sells stuff online i go into like extensive detail about all of the things uh or all of the flaws in the pieces that i'm selling like i will list like every little stain, every little like pinhole, because I want to make sure that people know exactly what they're getting. And it's interesting because a lot of the response I get from that is that if it has that much, um, if it has that many condition issues, you shouldn't be pricing it the way you are. And I'm just pricing it at the price that I paid for it. Right. And I think that's fair. Um, and it doesn't mean other people have to pay it if they don't want to. But I think it's fair to like talk about this is the price I paid for it. And I'm just trying to get that back. I think that makes me want to buy something more whenever I hear someone say that because then it's not just like this random price that came out of the air almost. Yeah. And- <laughs> 
like, why do you want $300 for this? Like what, what has gone into it or why, where did this number come from? Yeah. And sometimes I, sometimes I wonder, are they just like maybe following what they see some of the bigger name resellers doing? I think that they really have more power in setting the tone for these prices than they like to lead on. Yeah. Yeah. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And, and I know I wanted to also say, I know that you can't always catch every single flaw. Like sometimes you can't see a certain thing until you hold it up to the light in front of a window or, I mean, you might miss a moth hole that's really tiny or something like that. And I think that there should be that expectation that, you know, you're buying an item that is sometimes over 100 years old. It's not fair to expect it to be 100% perfect, even if it's dead stock sometimes. You're just not, it's not the same as buying something new today. But like I said, there's definitely an expectation I think that there should be to be as honest as possible and as accurate as possible. And, and if there's something that you missed as a reseller, depending on how severe it is, then that should be a conversation you have between your customer and yourself so that you can come to a resolution. And would you, would you say that it seems like resellers today almost know that they have the power to where they don't have to help you if it's inconvenient for them? Yeah, I definitely think so. Yeah, I've just heard from so many people in the past few weeks telling me these horror stories about receiving items that were misrepresented, not even usable, and then they're out hundreds of dollars because the reseller doesn't want to help them. And they know that they have the upper hand and the power, so they they can push you around a little bit and nothing infuriates me more than a bully. So yeah. I have a problem. I have a personal problem with yeah, this. Yeah, me too. And I think something that I've seen recently with um, sellers that sell through Instagram is a lot of them are now asking for uh, Venmo payments or like uh, PayPal friends and family where you don't have buyer protection. Oh, Interesting. And it's a little more under the table that way too, huh? Yeah. I think like the main reason they're doing is they don't have to pay a fee and they, I don't know if they have to report on their taxes. Um, um, I'm I'm sure legally they probably would be advised to do so, but I know how it really is. You know, most people probably aren't doing that. Yeah. I'm sure that they're doing it as like a loophole to like get out of it. Um, right. (laughs) So I have another question. So you've mentioned that you felt like you've had to accept lowball offers and underprice things in your shop lower than what you've even paid just to get them moving. How has that affected you financially or otherwise? Yeah. So I don't really consider myself much of a seller. I'll just start out with that. Like I'm really only selling stuff from my personal collection that didn't work out for me. Like I'm not going out and sourcing pieces to then resell so unlike other sellers who are doing that, they're buying stuff for cheap and then selling it high to make a profit. I'm selling every piece at cost, whatever price I paid, which means that even if people pay for that price after PayPal fees, taxes, any website fees, if I list it on Etsy, eBay, or Depop, I'm losing money on every single transaction. And that's just if I sell it at cost. And more often, I'm selling pieces at a discount just because I want to keep things moving. Like I've had pieces sitting on eBay and Depop for two or three years without selling. And at that point, 
I'd rather just sell at a loss, get a little money now, then wait three years and see if someone will buy yeah. it at full price. Yeah, it almost feels like bad luck to just leave something laying around in your closet for that long or something. I yeah. totally understand. There's like that anxiety a little bit, like that fire under you to just kind of get it out of there. But another thing is, do you find yourself choosing to sell at those price points because you're basically using this to like fund your passion rather than fund your pockets? Yeah, that's definitely another thing because... um I am not rich by any means. I make minimum wage, you know. I don't have a lot of spending money. So oftentimes my collection is more of a cyclical sort of thing. You know, I go through maybe twice a year and it's like, what am I not in love with anymore that I can pass on? And then that money goes towards buying new things that I like more. So, yeah. um yeah, so then uh, oftentimes I am willing to take offers because then that just means now I have a little bit of money that I can um, buy new things that make me happy. Yeah, I think I think a lot of people in the vintage community are doing the same thing that you are, and I can relate to that. What I sell sometimes on my Etsy or through Poshmark or something is just my husband and I, we just sell stuff that we have or we've had for a while that just like doesn't fit anymore or just we're not crazy about. And I just use it to fund buying other things that I like. Yeah. It's I hard to break even. Experience. Yeah. And um, you've mentioned that you've noticed that items don't seem to be worth as much outside of the larger name resellers shops, which if that's true, do you think that would mean that they're overcharging? Yeah, I definitely say that I think that resellers with larger followings are taking advantage of how much they can sell stuff for. And I was one of, one of many of those people, you know, two or three years ago who was tricked into believing that this is just what things go for nowadays, you know, prices increase, inflation, all of that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I started selling things um, that didn't work out for me after these prices um had started climbing that I realized something was up because what was happening was I would post something for sale for the exact same price that I bought it for in the exact same condition that I bought it in and people would send me messages and they'd be like hey you're really overcharging for this pieces um, like at this condition at this era like it's not worth those prices and it just made me think like why are people willing to buy stuff for that price from these big resellers and not from me. And if people aren't willing to pay me the same price for the same stuff, then is it really worth that price? Yeah. And another thing I meant, I forgot that you told me was that you've had resellers approach you maybe through the internet, if I'm remembering this correctly, to give offer you a lower price for those items just so they can go around and flip it and sell for those high prices. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I didn't know that they were resellers um, when they reached out to me. But yeah, I was selling some stuff on Facebook. And um, someone had reached out and was like, hey, I like this one item. And I also like these other two items. Can you do a discount if I buy all three? And when it comes to just other collectors, I'm much more willing to do that. Like, 
I just want these pieces to be appreciated. I just want to um, help these pieces find good homes with other people who also share my love of vintage. Um, yeah, but these particular pieces had been up um, for sale for two of them for like a couple weeks and the other one for like a year. And I had already discounted them because um, the one had been up for sale for a while and the other two, um, I think I just needed a little extra money at that time. So I was like, okay, I'll just price them a little bit lower than what I paid um, to see if it keeps things going. And so um, I did end up giving this person a discount for buying all three because I was like, okay, well, I'd rather have a couple dollars now then wait and see um if someone if like they're gonna sell uh for the price i have them at and i was just like oh well this person really likes these things i want to you know share the vintage with these people with these other people who also love vintage and then i think it was a week or two later um i was scrolling on instagram and i saw this seller that i follow had those three items and she was selling them in their shop in her shop for like twice as much as she had paid for them which was more than i even originally paid for them um wow and i was like oh well now i feel kind of crummy about that like i feel taken advantage of that's so important to acknowledge how you were feeling about that because i think a lot of other people can relate to you did she end up selling those items pretty quickly I know that one of them sold instantly. I'm not sure about the other two because I think they were on her website instead of directly on Instagram. Okay. That's so interesting. Um, Do you feel like you are in a a supportive community with the resellers that are kind of talking about people like you who also resell maybe on a smaller scale? Yeah, so it's interesting because honestly, with all of the negative things I've had to say so far about like the vintage reseller community there's definitely been a decent amount of support that i've gotten from other resellers now that i've uh started really uh selling on instagram um other sellers will share my listings and their stories um people will reach out to me and they'll be like hey you know you price this really low like market value you could probably make more for it which I think that it's nice that they're trying to help me out that way. Um, I wouldn't say I've had a lot of negative experiences with other sellers besides that one. Um, I think I've had a couple of bad experiences I've said before as being a buyer, but like seller to seller wise, I really haven't had many bad experiences. Okay. Well, I think that that's also good to talk about too give everybody a a clear picture of the fact that I don't think that this is every reseller that's doing this. And I think that anyone who chooses to sell, especially on a smaller scale, I don't really feel like they're the worst, like kind of perpetrator, like the the person I'm really trying to call out here, because I, I think there are plenty of people that are supportive and they have reasonable prices and they have good customer service. And, you know, I do want to draw attention to the fact that those people do deserve to be appreciated for the fact that they're not just taking advantage because they can. Because I think that the more followers an account has, 
probably means the more um, sourcing they're doing, they probably feel more pressure to deliver, as they say, fresh vintage. And I think that that can maybe change people. It can change your attitude. It can change the way you conduct your business. The more power you have, the more you might feel like you don't have to do as much for others. I, I have a lot of theories about it, but I am glad that you have some positive things to say as well about the supportiveness to other people in your community. <laughs> so, okay, my next question is, so like the big name resellers that have like 10,000 followers or more, I just kind of want to hear from you, like what kind of influence or power do you think that they might have over the vintage community as a whole who use the internet? Yeah, so I think that the resellers that have a really large following are able to control the market to some degree. Um, like I said, um, it's only really the well-known um, large following sellers that can get away with selling pieces for these higher prices. Um, yeah. And I think that when people see that someone has like, you know, 10,000 followers, um they sort of equate that to them being reputable and they're more likely to trust them. So if a seller with a large following posts a dress for, I don't know, $500, people are going to believe that it's worth $500, even if similar dresses out on the market are selling for significantly less. But if I say I bought that dress for $500, it didn't work out, and then I try to sell it for that same price, people are going to look at the other dresses for sale, you know, in similar styles that are selling for less. And they're going to be like, hey, like, this dress is not worth $500. Why are you selling it for $500? And I wonder why they don't say that type of thing to the larger resellers. Do you have any theories about that? I think that it's out of fear. I think that it's yeah. fear that these sellers, you know, you reach out to them like, hey, you know, this dress that you have for sale, you have it for 500, but there are 10 similar singles on Etsy that are each for 200. Um, I think you're overcharging for this. And, you know, they screenshot your DM, post it on their story, and they're like, this person is being unsupportive of small businesses. Um, and then you could end up getting blacklisted. And just for anyone that doesn't understand what blacklisted means in our community, can you just give a quick definition? Yeah, so I would say that blacklisted in the vintage community would be if you're a seller, no one's going to buy from you anymore. And if um, you're buying, then if someone like recognizes you, they're not going to sell to you. Okay, so that could be, it could impact your life in a pretty big way if you consider yourself like a very passionate vintage collector or enthusiast or just an, somebody who has a presence on social media that wants to participate. And that's interesting what you said about the screenshots, because I don't think there's anything wrong with screenshotting something that somebody messages to you if it's very hostile or like they're trying to kind of be nasty to you in secret. I don't have any issue putting them on blast if they're doing that. But if someone is just bringing up a valid concern or respectfully bringing up 
a question they have about an item or their feelings about the price, I don't think that's any reason to put them on blast like that. Because I think as a seller, you have a responsibility to be transparent and communicate. And, you know, if there's really nothing wrong with how you're pricing items, your first response should not be to be defensive and trying to silence or shame people that just stand up and have a question. Because we are kind of living in a society that normalizes that behavior right now. And that scares me because it's kind of programming people into fear to feel like we don't have a voice and we can't stand up and even just critically think or ask a question without being attacked yeah definitely yeah I've just noticed that it's definitely uncomfortable and I understand that fear though because it can be anxiety inducing but I have noticed that with larger name resellers a few in question that I can even think of specifically recently they almost seem to take some sort of pleasure in shaming people for just bringing up valid questions about items or like where they came from or how much they're worth and it's almost like bullying in a way and and I just I don't like that kind of like exclusivity mentality that's been growing and growing I think it should be more welcoming for just people to talk about these things and prices or fairness or just to even ask questions like why do you have to be shamed for dating a dress or asking a question about buying a dress or saying hey I don't have $300 for this day dress I'm interested in something a little bit less expensive can anybody help me you shouldn't have to be shamed or silenced just for asking even if somebody tells you something you don't want to hear yeah absolutely so have you can you think of the most unreasonable price flip you've ever seen or at least like something that kind of really stands out in your mind because I know you told me about um, a crochet set from the 30s that maybe you wouldn't mind just touching on again yeah I would say that's probably one of the most like drastic price flips I've seen so it was this 1930s crochet set that was being sold on Facebook and it was $345 which I would say is already pretty high but probably market price nowadays for 30s knit pieces unfortunately um it sold immediately and then a couple months later I saw it for sale on Instagram for $950. Wow. I just want to let that settle for a minute. <laughs> That's a lot of money. It is. Yeah. Did it did it sell immediately? Wow. I just want to know who has this kind of money. I know me to too. Be buying things like that. Like that's that's sometimes a month month's rent in certain areas for some people. Yeah, and absolutely. <laughs> sometimes more, yeah. honestly. And <laughs> I've seen other things like this isn't price flips because I don't know what the original prices were, but just some ridiculous prices in general that I've seen, you know, uh, evening Well, you gowns. know they didn't buy it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was gonna say I was gonna say you know they didn't buy it yeah. for like a thousand dollars though. No, absolutely. Yeah, I know that they they weren't paying this price, but yeah, right. Um, like I said, there's been some um, like 
30s, 40s rayon jumpsuits that have sold for like 800 to 1,000. Um, there was a sportswear jacket, um, 40s, like the teddy jacket type of thing, the grizzly oh, yeah. jacket that sold for 1,400. Wow. Amazing. I really appreciate you sharing these observations too, because it's sometimes hard to keep track of just how much vintage has been circulating through online. And I don't follow nearly as many <clears throat> resellers as you are. So hearing some of these prices is, is new to me too. That's a lot of money for a jacket. Yeah. Uh, quite a bit of sellers that I follow, their prices have increased so in so exponentially that there's at least a handful that I still follow that their baseline prices are like in the three to 600 range. Wow. And I guess some people are paying that. Um, do you think people are more willing to pay it because they have the money or do you think that it's perceived like scarcity because they're believing what these people are saying, like this is worth this much money and maybe they, they think, do you think that they, think that like that's the only chance they're going to get so they need to see how much they can put on their credit card to obtain it honestly I absolutely think it is that I think that it's there's a scarcity mentality it's like oh like this is you're never going to see this again like this is the only one you'll ever see like a thousand they talk it up (laughs) and (laughs) they um, talk it up like that (laughs) yeah And people are like, oh, wow, like, you know, and I think vintage in general kind of has that vibe. And to a certain extent, it's true that you're not very likely to see the same exact piece go up for sale again. Um, So I think vintage in general kind of has that scarcity um, vibe to it that uh, each piece is almost one of a kind. Um, and so I think then you can amplify it and these popular, uh, pieces are labeled as so rare, like once in a lifetime. And so people are like, oh, and it's so easy to, you don't even have to have a credit card these days. The amount of apps that let you, um, break payments down into like monthly payments, Oh, like layaway. Yeah, there's so many different types of like, like pay and for. You can do it through PayPal, Klarna, Zelle, um, uh, so many different apps that you can break down and need to uh, for um, two week payments or like six to 12 like monthly payments. Yeah, I've seen that. And it's not a new thing that people, especially women, will go to great lengths to be able to be stylish. And that to me just shows that there are more ways than ever now to be stylish. And it's and it's not that people are just way more wealthy than they used to be. I think that just a lot of people that love vintage are, they prioritize being able to be as stylish as possible. And they are willing to make those sacrifices for it. And I think that resellers, some of them can capitalize on that and they know it. And it's, to me, feels like they're taking a bit of advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And uh, just one more thing to add. Yeah. I think it's funny that they're always like rare, like once in a lifetime chance, like run, don't walk. 
and yeah. it would be like oh beach pajamas like you know beach pajamas are super big now and then suddenly mm-hmm. everyone's selling beach pajamas unfortunately this is where our audio cuts out i'm still learning the ropes of using this software and there seems to be an error with the program i'm using so what i'm going to do is my very best to summarize the rest of victoria and i's conversation and paraphrase what i can my video is not going to be playing for the second half of this conversation but you will be able to hear my voice and in the future for all of the other podcast episodes, I will be recording video as well. So I asked Victoria if she believes that vintage is really scarce and running out, like many resellers say, as a reason to justify their high prices. Victoria believes that all you have to do is get online to see the reality of the situation, where an abundance of vintage can be found on eBay, Etsy, and other virtual marketplaces. Victoria and I both agree that there is a missing piece of the puzzle here. Fresh vintage is being advertised by popular reselling businesses all the time, and there seems to be a never-ending influx of new things. So if this is true, how is it that they can say their prices need to be high to compensate for rarity? It seems that the best pieces are being stockpiled somewhere, and that resellers are getting to newly donated items first. I mentioned that if you've ever grown up in a city where there is a large, older population and ancestral family homes that have lived there their whole lives, you'll notice that many of those types don't throw things away very much. These were people who lived through the Great Depression, or their parents did, and they saved everything as a rule. There are still many people who lived through this time that are still alive. They pass away, and their children or relatives donate these items to the goodwill, usually, or at least they used to, especially in towns that aren't so hip or trendy because there isn't this huge vintage scene there. But many towns now have like a resident flipper or a reseller who will know which estate sales to hit up. They know that there's money to be made and they know how to flip things for high profits. There's many resources online now that teach people how to do this. They make it their job to know and to be their first in line at their local Goodwill outlets. Now that reselling and thrift flipping is a trendy thing, there's a lot of people eager to get a slice of the pie. So this behavior actually creates a scarcity mindset because regular thrifters, weekend thrifters, who do this casually for fun are going to secondhand stores and not finding anything anymore. Someone is getting to it first, somehow, and that experience combined with online resellers telling people it's just getting so scarce are creating this powerful message that you need to pay high prices for things you used to be able to find yourself because they are getting to be the only way to obtain it. Victoria also mentions that because of this scarcity mindset, she frequently finds herself making impulse purchases online from resellers who are charging top dollar. Sometimes they use manipulative language that convinces you that you might not ever see this kind of piece again, that you need to run and not walk to buy it, and they must know that sort of urgent language lights a fire within us. It creates this sort of anxiety, and I myself have been finding myself in situations where I've believed it 
made the purchase and then later regret it because this piece doesn't work out or maybe it's not in as good of condition as I thought or maybe I didn't like it as much as I realized and in the moment where I felt like it was so scarce that I needed to act, I wasn't thinking clearly. And I can't help but wonder, do resellers know this? Do they understand that they are moving their items more quickly whenever they use this kind of language so they're using it to take advantage of us? I think there's something to it. Next, I asked Victoria about her opinions on having to DM sellers for a price, and if anyone doesn't know, DM means direct message, rather than just have the price listed on their posts. Many people will say DM for price, or message me to find out the price of this item to claim it. And the issue with this is you're not seeing the price on the page or on the listing, so you can't really think about it. Um, realistically, Victoria thinks that it feels like a trap because once you DM a seller and decide the item isn't for you, it's easy to feel guilty, like you are wasting a seller's time. And I agreed that it felt like it created a sense of obligation because once you engage and open up that kind of personal communication that a DM entails, then there's like a pool there. You're connected to this person and their emotions. And for me, if you're a more sensitive kind of person to your environment, I think that it's easy to see how once you have a private conversation with someone, then you do feel like you have to give them an answer and you do feel like you have to give them an answer soon like right away. There's not that much time to think about it. There is a atmosphere of urgency there. And sometimes I have felt like this and Victoria has too. You feel like you have to buy this item. It can take a lot of energy to begin and end those conversations too. It's, it's not a simple casual thing for a lot of us. And I know if I've ever had to tell someone, no, I'm not interested, that's too expensive for me, then it can sometimes feel a little bad or you feel disappointed like you're letting someone down and it, it feels dishonest and it feels draining to have to go through the negotiations of a purchase this way. Victoria also mentioned a more sinister side of this practice as well. It's possible that some sellers like to filter their customer base to decide how much they will charge them depending on who they are and what they know about them already. For instance, if it is a celebrity or a well-known collector, they might price it higher because they know this person will pay whatever you ask. For a friend or another seller, they might price it lower or give them a discount there is an air of secrecy about not listing prices on your posts, and no matter what the motive is, I do have an issue with it. It makes me want to pass the listing by, even if I like it, because it doesn't feel honest or forthcoming, or like it's giving me enough time to clearly think over, is this worth it? Do I really need or want this? Next, 
I asked Victoria if keeping quiet about issues we may have with the practices of resellers that we don't agree with is keeping our community at a distance. She agrees that by treating customers unkindly when they bring up concerns or complaints that it keeps us afraid to speak up. And when we are afraid to speak up, other people will be uninformed and easily taken advantage of if something adverse happens. They won't know that they aren't alone either because so many people are not talking about it and feel afraid to talk about it. We live in a culture where it's kind of seen as taboo to bring up complaints or concerns or to ask too many questions. And if you do any of these things, you're almost treated like this negative, dramatic person and like you're focusing on the negative or you're dividing your community. But I think those are tactics used by people who just don't want to answer questions. They don't want to be transparent and they want to live behind this screen or illusion of everything just being fine or perfect. It's something to think about. That's when I made the connection to the posts I've been making, and most notably, the one that really blew up a few weeks back. This is why it had such an impact on the community, because there was this untapped silence so many people were holding in, just waiting to come out and talk about it to someone. And I can't help but feel like if we all took a stand and talked about this more, difficult topics and forced the shady sellers to be accountable, they would have no choice but to change their ways because their main customer base is at risk of leaving them. We have so much power as a community and should be able to call the shots here and put our foot down and ask questions when someone is charging too much or treating other customers badly. We should be protecting each other and having each other's back to boycott anyone who is dishonest or overcharges or refuses refunds or they're not transparent um, and especially refusing refunds when they make a serious mistake. Next, I asked Victoria if she feels that gatekeeping has gotten out of hand in the vintage community. To be clear, Gatekeeping is referred to here as using their specific knowledge of a subject to demean or humiliate others, or to even keep others from having that knowledge too, for whatever reason. They want to be the authority and won't go out of their way to help others be included in that space, again, for many possible reasons. Victoria tells me about a story she saw on a specific seller's Instagram. This reseller complained about people asking her questions about how to care for vintage garments, how to date vintage garments, cleaning vintage garments, and basic vintage know-how and knowledge in general that we all end up learning with time and experience, and if we are lucky, help from a compassionate mentor or someone willing to share. Now this reseller was upset that others requested this assistance from her, a self-professed historian or expert. She felt that because she had to learn it all herself, that others should too, and that she shouldn't be expected to reveal her hard-learned secrets to newcomers. To me, this is a very old-fashioned mentality. I've heard a lot of people from my parents' generation say it, so that would probably be considered boomers or even Gen X. 
Whether she realized it or not, her attitude was showing bitterness. Obviously, no one had taken their time to show her that sort of kindness and patience, so she had to learn things the hard and arduous way herself. Now, instead of learning from this and saying, hey, I didn't like having to do this and have people keep their wisdom from me. I'm going to stop this cycle and do better. She gets lost in her resentment and just keeps perpetuating the practice. She is the one who loses out with this attitude too, because she doesn't realize that by treating people this way, she's driving away customers. She's losing their respect. She's getting lost in her own feelings of frustration and bitterness. It's sad, and it's mean. Even if she doesn't want to help them, no one should be shaming anyone for asking questions and wanting to learn. There are better ways to politely decline sharing what you know than scoffing at them and saying, the audacity. An even more sinister side to this, Victoria mentions, is that there is a possibility that the resellers who do this might know how much they are benefiting from keeping knowledge away from others. If others are relying on them to fix up items, to date items, to source items that these resellers get for cheap, then the customer feels like they have to go through them and they have to pay their prices to obtain the clothing that they want. If she teaches people how to care for vintage clothing, fix it and clean it, she might be afraid that they will make her job obsolete, or they might want to get in on the vintage flipping business too. We have both, Victoria and I, observed that the vintage market has grown exponentially online over the past few years. People are waking up to how nice it is to have a job like that, and the benefits are great. You get to keep whatever you want. You get to make friends and rub elbows with sometimes the rich and famous. It's a flexible job, and it allows you to stop the 9-to-5 grind. They are afraid that eventually they might not be able to have these luxuries in abundance anymore. Lastly about this topic is that when you share knowledge, you are sharing your passion for history, antiques, and vintage clothing. That is what a successful community does. It has people who support each other, not greedily exclaim that every man is for himself, or a woman in this case. I want to move closer to encouraging positive mentorship, education, and the asking of questions so we can all grow and learn together rather than see this community as a competition of who can have the most rare and exquisite resources. Because we all want to have beautiful, rare, and in-demand clothing that's part of enjoying style and being conscious of it. But there's no reason to be so competitive and think that things are so scarce that if you fill anybody else in that you're not going to have enough. There's plenty out there and I just want to ensure that all of my listeners who are thinking about this can spend some time mulling over how they are approaching competitiveness or community in this way and I've had to think about this myself, just what are my thoughts on how I collect vintage and how I share information?
Next, I asked Victoria how she feels the vintage community has changed since she began collecting, and she had an eye-opening answer. Now, remember, she said she's been collecting and wearing vintage for over 15 years. She said it was how resellers were getting their products is how it has changed. She has firsthand knowledge about brick and mortar vintage stores in the past and how they would get their inventory exclusively from walk-in customers and people who would call in to the vintage store and say, hey, I have a house full of things. Would you be interested in buying it? It's called a house call and it's when someone passes away, their relatives end up with all of their things and they have interest in selling them to a vintage store. So they work together directly. No one misses out on profits because the vintage store is usually very clear about how much they are going to be profiting and how much they are buying the items for from the person who is selling them directly to them. Now, we have both noticed that really isn't as big of a thing now. People aren't seeming to obtain their vintage this way, especially online resellers. And what we're seeing more and more of now is buying listings and items from online sources that are already there and available to other people who are interested, such as Facebook groups, Etsy, eBay, and places like Depop and some other reselling websites. The issue is too that these resellers are usually not doing much to improve the item. They are buying them for a cheaper price, usually not being transparent about why they're buying them. So the seller might just think that it's an enthusiast or a collector and the resellers then flip them They take better pictures and then sometimes sell them for twice, three times, four times as much money because they know they can get higher prices on their platforms. This is actually causing a scarcity mindset because I know of many big resellers who are hoarding this stuff in warehouses and storage units and doing whatever they can to get their hands on all the available collectible nicer quality merchandise so that they can dictate the prices. They are even driving to different states and filling their cars up with affordable, cheap, nice vintage because they know that they have other competition in the market of other resellers who are doing the same thing. So now it's just like a rat race, mad scramble to get what they can and have the best collection. They want to control it and they want that profit. So when they do this, it removes the accessibility, affordability, and sustainability from buying things in thrift stores, finding things for good deals online, and it forces anyone who wants to buy on the internet or feels like that is their best shot at collecting and buying items they want, it forces them to have to go through this relatively smaller pool of resellers who are buying up more and more of the good vintage and charging whatever they want for it and justifying it in many ways. But I've noticed one thing they all have in common is A, they're expensive, and B, they're not being transparent about their prices and why they're charging so much. 
And I find it hard to believe that in the span of just five years, that there are so many more vintage sellers and so much higher prices than there were before. It's uncanny and it's definitely something to consider. It controls the prices and perceptions of rarity and value too. And it's very easy to go online and feel like you have to pay a few hundred dollars or more for something that another person tells you is rare because they might be saying that, hey, my credentials are, I'm a fashion historian, I'm an expert, I'm going to tell you that this is a very rare piece and this is why you need to pay me $600 for this dress. And if you question that or say you can't afford that, then they mock you or try and make you feel bad or put you down for even daring to to ask for it, even daring to open your mouth, and that's not okay. We also discussed how it poses an issue for those working nine to five or day jobs because they're not able to spend as much time searching for their vintage And when they would, they might just be weekenders or people who go out on their days off. And maybe in the past, they would find a couple of nice items just in their local thrift store. But now it's not really happening like that. And if you're working nine to five, you don't have time to stop what you're doing to go on eBay and closely follow an auction or go on the Facebook buy, sell, trade groups and be the first in line to claim an item that you want. So I think that these resellers are taking advantage of the flexibility of their jobs to get there first. And that is definitely something I have an issue with. The working class people are losing out here. We also have resellers going out and requesting that people sell to them specific items at low prices so she can have a cohesive collection of used vintage items for her vision. The reseller in question who I'm thinking about specifically requests that people sell her lower priced items that she requests and she says that she has to make money off of it, so they need to respect that and sell her these items at lower prices, which is very odd because she's also asking to people, she's also asking that people respect and pay her high prices for her work, but demanding that people sell her things at cheap prices so she can make money. So to me, it seems like she feels like she deserves to be paid well, but others don't for finding these items and selling them to her for cheap prices, it doesn't make any sense to me. She's saying for some reason she deserves to make more money than they do off of their items. It really seems almost narcissistic to assume that she is entitled to that, but other people are not. It almost reminds me of like the big name fashion houses, how they create collections that are carefully thought out and planned out, and then they invite a small group of people to the salon to sit in and admire the work and and buy it exclusively from this designer. But the difference is this reseller and anybody else who does this, they're not doing anything but putting together a collage or a collection of things that other people have made, things that other people have sold them, other people have worn, I don't think it's fair to demand 
other people pay super high prices for something that you're not even creating or making yourself. Sure, it does take some work and I can admire putting together like a cohesive vision board of something, but I still don't understand why you should be making the same amount of money as someone who actually designed and created these garments themselves. It doesn't add up. Finally, I asked Victoria her opinion on all of the backlash I have received for speaking out against vintage hoarding, unethical reselling practices such as honesty, price gouging, transparency, and overpricing items in general. I asked her why she thinks so many people have been so defensive rather than having productive, polite, respectful conversations. Victoria answered that she believes that it is because they want to believe they are doing nothing wrong. I think sometimes we all do. And it's because they are directly benefiting from it. She said, why would they want to stop? They don't want to go back to a crappy 9-to-5 day job, and by calling out unethical behaviors, they are feeling threatened. They want to make money in a way that doesn't require a ton of effort. When they react so poorly, vintage lovers with a brain or a critical brain, are saying to themselves, I'm not going to want to buy from this person who can't even be accountable, who can't even grow from this, who can't even talk about it without stooping to levels where they are talking down to anybody who questions them. I want to conclude by talking about price transparency. A while back, I ran into a vintage reseller who was making fun of me for suggesting that they be more transparent of their cost breakdowns. Of course I was being mocked, but that led to a conversation with her where she tried to justify not sharing prices, and I'm glad we had this conversation because she brought up a really interesting point. She said, Do you expect grocers to tell you how much they buy things at cost for? Do you expect mechanics to tell you how much their labor was worth? And at the time, I had to think about that because I already knew it wasn't a very good argument because these services are probably, I would say they're much more essential than buying and selling clothing. But the more I thought about it, I had to say yes. A lot of different professionals provide itemized receipts, breaking down parts, labor, and all other sorts of costs, as do medical offices, hair salons, some clothing companies are now being transparent like this. And my thoughts are, if these legitimate businesses can provide transparency with confidence, knowing that it creates a closer bond with their customer base, why can't you? If you consider yourself to be a small business, then what is keeping you from being completely honest with your customers about how much you're obtaining these items for and why you believe they are worth as much as you are asking for them. Even if you are overcharging, even if you are charging a lot, I think you need to own it and talk about why you are charging what you are. Is the item just really rare? Is it a collector or a designer? Did you pay this much for the item? Did you do extensive restoration work? I need to know, because otherwise I can't trust you. And I encourage 
any of my vintage loving friends who are listening to really think about how important it is to hold people accountable for their prices. And if they aren't willing to talk about it or if they become defensive, I wonder what does that say about them? Does it say they're taking advantage of you? I feel that way. I wonder what they would say. If we demand fairness, radical transparency, and honesty, you might find that they are making massive profits at your expense. You also might find that more people are willing to consider fair and ethical business practices. You might actually find that you are changing the community and in your own way, the world and how we operate. And that is a powerful and beautiful thing. I encourage anyone who has resonated with this episode to write me some questions, give me your feedback, send me a message and tell me how you feel. I do care and am open to hearing what you have to say. I want to give a voice to anyone who might be feeling conflicted or want to know more. I want to thank you all for joining me for episode two of Other People's Things. And even though the recording did not work all the way through for both of us, I hope that I brought integrity and vision to the rest of the audio and Victoria's voice. I just want to say another thank you to her for coming on the show and sharing with me what she has experienced. I encourage you all to tune in next time whenever we have another guest who I'm really looking forward to speaking with as well, who's in the vintage community. Thank you so much, everybody. Have a wonderful week and thanks for tuning in to other people's things.